Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Our reading today comes from Luke 10, 25 to 41. Would you please read along with us? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Hope everybody's doing well. Hey, before we get started today, just uh, a really quick thing that I want to let you know about. You may have seen a Facebook post that I made earlier uh, this week, but we're trying to help the church get to know something that's going on in the life of our church right now. We have a team of people who have started working with Samaritan's Purse to be a part of something called the Afghan Resettlement Project. And so there are people from Afghanistan who have been relocated into the United States, and now the uh, the government and some Samaritan's Purse are trying to work with churches to help resettle people into communities where they would find a place to be to belong and to be loved and taken care of. And so uh, we have a team of people who are working right now to help make that happen. Uh, and one of the greatest needs that we have in the middle of that is helping find housing for a family, probably a family of six to seven people. Uh, And so it's a difficult market right now, uh, housing market right now, finding something for that uh, has been difficult. There are also other hurdles that we have to jump through in order to help a family relocate here. Uh, So we're asking the church, if you or someone that you know has a rental property or some type of ability to uh, temporarily house a family until we can get them here, get them established, helping find a job, helping find uh, transportation, those kinds of things, and then we can get 
them into a more established and settled home, we would love to, to talk to you about what it might look like uh, for you to help us make those connections. So if you have the ability to do that, or if you're watching online today and you're hearing this announcement about that, we would love for you to help us. I love this idea that we're working to bring people into our community. Uh, so many times when we think about being on mission with Jesus, we think about having to, to go to somewhere like Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq or Egypt or Saudi Arabia. And instead, God is giving us an opportunity to have the world brought to us. And so I love that idea that we are people who are sent out to the world to show his love. And yet when the world comes to us, we want to be just as available to him. So I'm thankful for that. And if you have the ability to help, we would love for you to do that. Uh, Tim and Melissa Pitts are helping guide that team. If you guys would raise your hand and wave back there, you could talk to them or you could talk to, uh, to me and we'll point you in the right direction. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter nine this morning and we're going to uh, pick back up right where we left off last week. And so we are going to be just jumping right into the middle of Luke chapter 9. And here's what we saw last week. Jesus uh, is spending time with his disciples. He's taken them to the northernmost part of Israel. And while he's there, he has a conversation with them. He's looking to define the relationship that he has as he's getting ready to make his march. From this point forward, everything is going to be pointed toward Jerusalem and the end of Jesus' life. And so at this juncture of his ministry, he takes his disciples aside and he has a conversation with them to kind of define the relationship. He asks the question, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that all of us will answer in our lifetime. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? You have to answer that question in your lifetime. And so Jesus asks his disciples that. And Peter speaks up on behalf of all of the disciples. And he says, you, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. We believe you are God's Messiah. Now, Peter didn't know all of what that meant. And we'll talk about that even more today. But he had the right answer. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. He thought, and the rest of the disciples thought, that meant Jesus was going to come and, and bring a reestablishment of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of David, back to prominence, and, and that they were going to drive out Rome and have freedom again that they had not experienced for a long time. That was their view of the Messiah. But Jesus asked that question, who do you say people, or who do you say that I am? They say, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Then he takes the next step with them in asking a question or in telling them some things about himself. And he says, the Messiah, the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles, and he's going to be beaten and scourged, whipped and crucified, and he's going to die. But take heart, he's going to come back to life. And then he says to his disciples, and if anyone wants to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow me. And so the disciples are getting some radically new ideas in their minds about what it means to follow Jesus. That they're going, Jesus is going to die. The guy that we've put on this pinnacle uh, pedestal, he is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one we've been waiting for. But he's telling us now that he's going to die. Like, that doesn't compute with us. We don't understand. And then he's telling us if we're going to follow him, we need to be prepared to die. All of us as his disciples should be willing to, to deny ourselves the things we want to do in life, to take up our cross every single day, putting ourselves to death in order to follow him. 
And so he says, that's where we're going in this thing. If you're following me, this is the direction. We're headed to a cross. We're headed to death. And so the disciples are in this moment trying to make some decisions about what Jesus is really talking about. And after he has this conversation with them, there's another revelation about himself that takes place. So in Luke chapter 9, we pick up the story in verse 28 and following. And here's what we find. It says, about eight days after Jesus had said this, so a week has gone by, about eight days later, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, and they did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. All right, so as we pick up this story, Jesus is alone with his inner circle, Peter, John, and James, and he's praying, right? The guys are asleep. They're deep asleep, but Jesus is spending time in prayer. And here's what I want you to see. If you're taking notes this morning, following along on our app, or you just want to write some things down that might be helpful for you to remember as you go through your journey with Christ, here's the first thing I want you to see. Every major event in Jesus' life is preceded by prayer. Everything you see in Jesus' life, every major event, and even every non-major event, if there can be a non-major event in the life of Jesus, it's always preceded by prayer. And so we see with Jesus before he was baptized and he launched his public ministry, he prayed. Then Jesus goes and spends 40 days in the wilderness where before he's tempted by Satan, he spends 40 days praying and fasting and seeking after his father. The night before Jesus selected his 12 disciples, he had a lot of disciples, but the Bible says in multiple occasions that he went up on a mountainside and he prayed alone all night before choosing the 12 who would follow him for the rest of his life. And then we find Jesus just before he walked on water during the storm, he had sent his disciples ahead so that he could go and be by himself and pray. And when they get out on the storm, on the lake in the storm, Jesus comes walking out to them but it's preceded by him being in prayer with his father. Then we find that at Jesus, the night that he was arrested and taken away for trial during the crucifixion or before the crucifixion, we find him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Every major event of Jesus' life is preceded by prayer. Even when we see that Scripture will say that Jesus would often go alone to lonely places where he could pray and be with his father. This is a natural occurrence in the life of Jesus. Now, let me just say this. Jesus is God in flesh. If Jesus needs to spend this kind of time in prayer, what does it say about us and how much time we should spend in prayer? What does it say about you 
in being able to do the things that Jesus has called you to do in ministry, in connection with him, that he's called you into relationship with him where he wants to send you out to do ministry in his name. How much do we need to pray if Jesus had to pray this extensively? If he was God in flesh and he spent this kind of time seeking after the Father in prayer, how much time do we need to be spent in prayer? If we're going to do anything of worth and significance in our lives, we need to pray. Your marriage is a ministry. How much time do you spend in prayer for your marriage? Raising kids is a ministry. How much time do you spend in prayer for wisdom to raise your kids? Your job is a ministry. How much time do you spend in prayer around the things that you do in your job, in your workplace? Where you hang out and play and have relationships in your neighborhood. That's a ministry. How much time do you spend in prayer about God using you to impact your neighborhood and your community? Everything that we do needs to be preceded in prayer. That was the pattern that Jesus used in his life, and it's the pattern that we should find in our lives. And here's the next thing on your outline. Prayer keeps us centered on the centrality of Jesus and his centrality in our lives, and it keeps us in a desperate place of need for him. Prayer is going to be one of those things that keeps us centered on the centrality of Jesus in our life and our desperate need for him. That we start to realize, I can't do all these things on my own. If I try to do them in my power, in my ability, with my experience, I'm probably going to mess this up. I need the power of Jesus in my life. I need the inner working of the Holy Spirit in my life to pull this off. I need a deep abiding relationship with my Father in order to do these things. So how much time do we spend in prayer? Well, it'll come as no surprise to you that the passage we just read, we find again that Jesus is praying when this truly supernatural event takes place. As Jesus was praying, Luke tells us that the appearance of his face changed. And then his clothes became as white as a flash of light. Some translations say that it was like lightning. I don't know if you've ever looked at lightning before or had a flash of lightning hit somewhere close to you. It is brilliantly white, right? Light like you wouldn't believe. He says, this is what Jesus looked like as he begins praying. And as he spent time in prayer, this is known as the transfiguration that's what theologians call this event that takes place. It's the transfiguration. Jesus is transformed before their very eyes. That he begins to appear in his natural glory. The real miracle is that Jesus doesn't always look like this. Because this is who Jesus is. But when Jesus came to earth, he disrobed from his full glory to take on humanity. He was still 100% God, but he was also 100% man. It's a miraculous thing that God and man combine. And Jesus is God in the flesh. But in this moment, the disciples get to see him in his divinity. They get to see him in his natural state. And it's amazing. But not only is he there, we're told that there are other people with him, Moses and Elijah. And so when we see this, we go, man, this is actually something from the Old Testament that's similar. When we say that, that Jesus, his face changed, he was glowing, like this glow was coming from him, this light was emanating from him. Moses has this same type of experience when he goes up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God. 
And in the cloud that God exists in so that Moses can be with him, you can't see God and live. So God envelops Moses in this cloud. But in the presence of God, when Moses comes off of the mountain, the Bible says in Exodus that his face was glowing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody with their face glowing or not. I know sometimes we talk about pregnant women like that, like, oh, you're just glowing. Not like this, you're not. (laughs) Right? Like, this is your face on fire. And when the people saw Moses come down off with his face shining, they went, Moses, that's terrifying. Put a bag over your head, all right? And Moses had to do that. He literally covered himself with a bag over his face so that he wouldn't scare people until the glory of God had drifted from him. And so we've seen this before in the Old Testament. Now with Jesus, we see it again, that he's present with his father He starts to be radiating his glory, and then we find that he's also there with Moses and Elijah. Uh, Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the mountain, and we're told that they're talking to him about something specific. And so as you see this, it says they were talking to him about his departure. So when Moses and Elijah show up, they start having this conversation with Jesus. The Greek term for this would literally be exodus. Hey, Jesus, you're getting ready to depart from this world. You're getting ready to make your exodus on to the next thing. You're going back to heaven. You are going to accomplish your mission, giving your life on the cross, and then the time of your departure where you're going to leave this world and be returned to heaven to your Father is going to take place. And that's really all we're told. They were talking to him about his departure. Now, i got to be honest with you. When we get to heaven, this is one of those things that I'm like, I hope there's instant replay because I want to see this play out, right? Like the boys are asleep over here in the corner. They just wake up long enough to know that there's something going on and they're talking about his departure, but they don't get the conversation. And Luke doesn't tell us what the conversation was of Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. I want to eavesdrop on that conversation, don't you? I just want to know what they were saying and what was taking place. But the disciples kind of miss it. They're they're starting to miss this whole thing. Jesus is going to make his exodus back to heaven. And in the process, he's going to make it possible for us to experience an exodus as well. Now, when we hear the word exodus, what immediately comes to mind? The Old Testament, right? We think about the book of Exodus. We think about the the, uh, Egyptian liberation of the Jewish people, that they're going to, to exodus from Egypt and be moved on to the promised land, right? Like all of those things, they're going to escape from slavery and be brought into freedom. And the same thing is happening here with Jesus. When we see Jesus in this moment and his exodus that's coming, the same thing is taking place. He's going to make an exodus available for us. And because of his exodus, because of his death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, he gives us the ability to experience life after death, and to experience fullness of life in this life. That he says, listen, I want you to know that you can escape from sin. Through my sacrifice on the cross, you can leave the slavery of sin and be brought into complete freedom. That's what Jesus does for us. And so as they're talking about his exodus, there's another exodus in the background, and it's our exodus from sin that we follow him and that we join him in his journey and in his path. And so we see all of this playing out, but in this next part of the passage, we find something that's incredibly interesting. Verse 32 says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Right? So the boys have been asleep. They kind of wake up. They start to look around and they go, oh my gosh, there's not just Jesus here. And is he glowing? What's going on? They also see Moses and Elijah. Right? Now, let me just say this. This is an aside. They didn't know who Moses and Elijah were. They had heard about Moses and Elijah, but they'd never seen them. But they look up and they immediately go, that's Moses and Elijah. Here's what's cool about that. I have people ask me all the time, do you think we'll know our loved ones that went before us when we get to heaven? Absolutely, I think you will. I think that you will wake up in heaven one day after you breathe your last breath on this earth and you'll see people and you'll be like, oh my gosh, that's Peter. That's James. That's John. I've always wanted to talk to these guys. That's my great-great-grandfather. I always heard stories about. And he's here, and I see him, and I know him. And I think we'll know who people are when we see him. Peter, John, and James, they wake up, and they go, that's Moses and Elijah with Jesus. These are heroes of the Jewish people. And it's important that we have Moses and Elijah here. And there are people who say all kinds of different things about why it's Moses and Elijah. But we'll talk about that some more in a minute. But these guys are about to miss everything as they wake up. The Bible says that they were leaving. Verse 33 says, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Right? Now, I think back, and we're told at the very beginning of this passage, only about eight days has passed since Jesus has said, the Son of Man is going to die and come back to life. And if anybody wants to be my disciple, you have to be willing to die and follow me. And so now Peter wakes up and sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah with those words ringing in his background of going, I'm going to die. You need to all be prepared to die. And Peter goes, hey, Jesus, there's you and Moses and Elijah. This is awesome. Let's stay here. This is a better place to be. Remember the other day when you told us that you were going to die? You're not going to die if you stay here. Remember when you said, if we follow you, we might die. We're not going to die if we stay here. Let's just put up some structures, Jesus. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's basically saying, let's just erect some tabernacles right here for you guys. And let's just stay put. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? But Luke goes in parentheses, he did not know what he was talking about. Because <laughs> I didn't get it. I don't know what's going on. I think we should just stay. But Jesus had different plans. Now, the significance of Moses and Elijah is important. And here's what I think we find here. In the Old Testament, Moses is the giver of the law. And Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. So when you think about all of the teachings of the prophets, you think about Elijah as the head of those things. Scripture often talks about the fact that the entire Old Testament can be summed up as the law and the prophets. So for Jesus to be with Moses and Elijah, you have standing in front of you the law, the prophets, and the gospel, the good news of salvation. And Peter goes, this is incredible. We got Moses, the law, we got Elijah, the prophet. We got Jesus, the good news of God, the Savior of the world. Let's just stay here and make you guys tabernacles and temples for a place of worship. And Peter's idea is that they're all on equal footing. There's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus, and they're kind of the same. 
Yes, Peter's made the proclamation, you're the son of God. But when he sees him beside the law and the prophets, he goes, this, this is good. Let's just keep them equal. We've got the law, we've got the prophets, we've got the gospel. They all work together. This is what we need. And then as soon as Peter says that, the Bible says that a cloud descended on top of the mountain and the voice of God speaks out. And it says that the disciples saw the cloud coming. It was moving toward them and they were terrified. In the Old Testament, we see this all the time. The presence of God shows up in a cloud. And as this cloud descends on the mountaintop, God speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my son, the one I've chosen. Listen to him. In other words, you guys don't be knuckleheads and listen to Peter. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I've chosen Jesus. Listen to him. And then I love what happens next. The cloud disappears. And the Bible says that when Peter, John, and James looked, there was only Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. And the focus is Jesus. See, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Jesus didn't come to bring equal footing of the gospel with the Old Testament law and prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he came to bring an entirely new work onto the scene. Jesus came to bring salvation that's by grace through faith. And we might look at Peter and go, how ridiculous, Peter, that you would want to put the law and the prophets on equal footing with the Gospels. But let's be honest, we do that too if we're not careful. There are times in our lives where we'll look at things and we'll say, it's Jesus plus something else that brings salvation. I'll, I'll, I'll trust Jesus for salvation, but I also have to do certain good works in order to get there. I'll trust Jesus for salvation, but there's also religious practice that I have to do in order to attach that to Jesus and have salvation. And the gospel is that salvation is Jesus plus nothing. It's not by our work so that no one can boast. It's not living out religious duties and responsibilities. In fact, Jesus came to set us free from those things. He calls it a burden. Don't pick up the burden any longer. Don't pick up those things from the Old Testament law that you have to carry with you and say, I have to fulfill this stuff in order to be right with God. He goes, no, just me. And so when God speaks out and says, this is my son, I've chosen him, listen to him, and the cloud disappears and Moses and Elijah are gone and it's only Jesus standing there, it's as if the disciples are able to look at the past and the future and they're able to go, there's only one path. The future of getting to relationship with God is only through Jesus, not through keeping the law and the prophets. Jesus stands alone. And so that's where we need to find ourselves this morning, asking the question, do I believe that it's Jesus alone or am I trying to earn salvation in some other way? Do I think that I have to do something attached to Jesus in order to be right with God? Or am I willing to accept that salvation is a gift of God by grace and I accept it through faith? I can't work for it. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. 
I'm a sinful person. And only by the grace of God can I stand and preach the message of salvation. Because I'm not worthy to do that. If you knew my heart and you knew my sin, you wouldn't listen to a word that I said. But by the grace of God, can any one of us proclaim the good news of salvation? Because it's not about us and how good we are. It's about Jesus and how good he is. And it's interesting because last week when we looked at the passage, when Jesus told his disciples that he was the Messiah, and Peter made that declaration, and Jesus says, you're right, I am, don't tell anybody. And we talked about why. They didn't have the full picture of what was going on. It was like having a puzzle put in front of them, and they didn't have the box top to know what they were putting together. They just had a bunch of puzzle pieces. And the more they put it together, the more it started to make sense, and the more they could start figuring out what it looked like. Jesus reveals himself little by little over time. But the more they put it together, the more they saw the full picture coming together, the more they realized what Jesus was really all about. We have the blessing and the benefit of seeing the full picture. But Jesus had told his disciples, until you know what's going on, don't tell anybody. In this chapter, in this part of the chapter, it says that after God left and said, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him, it says the disciples put themselves on lockdown. They made it their own determination. We're not going to tell anybody what just happened up here. <laughs> We're not going to go back down off the mountain and tell the other disciples Jesus was glowing and Elijah showed up and Moses was there and God came and spoke. Like, you would sound crazy. They go, we're just going to keep this to ourselves for now. And I love how Luke says this. At the very end of that passage, he says, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and they did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen but they didn't keep it private forever. Because once they had the full picture, once they had put the puzzle pieces all together, once Jesus had died and rose back from the grave and ascended to heaven, Peter and John write about it. And I want you just to see this this morning because it's the final piece of the puzzle. It completes everything. So here's John in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, and then verses 17 and 18. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. And then Peter says it this way. In his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. We did not follow clearly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Right? So at first, they were like, guys, we, we can't tell anybody. Let's just keep this for ourselves. But after Jesus comes back to life, they're like, we got to tell everybody. This is the best news possible. Jesus is the greater glory. 
that the Old Testament points toward. The Old Testament is always pointing forward to our Savior, and it's Jesus. And so this morning, as we close up our service, we're going to share in communion together. When we eat and we drink of this meal, it reminds us of Jesus and His glory. It reminds us that He is the one and only Son of the Father, chosen by God to deliver us, to bring us into relationship with Him. And we have an opportunity this morning to see that Jesus is the greater glory. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus alone, the hope of our salvation. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.